1 Corinthians 10, 14 to 22. Well, sometimes throughout our lives, we, we ask ourselves the question, what is it that I really need? What is it that I really need? If you're thinking about uh, in regards to physical fitness, you may come to a variety of different answers. If you begin reading about fitness and how to get fit, you're going to be pulled a variety of different ways by people who think their way is the right way to really get fit. So you might have some who say what you really need is a lot of cardio, a lot of long-distance cardio on the treadmill or on the, the stair-stepper. You need to go long distances, and that way you'll become really fit. Others will say, well, no, what you really need is weight training. You need to get in the gym and push some weights around, lift the big heavy weights of squats and uh, pull-ups and bench press and those things. This is the way you're going to get fit. Others will say, no, do, you need to do yoga because then you'll be uh, well-balanced in, in all of your physicality and balance and uh, fitness. You need Maybe calisthenics, uh, working out with just your body weight. Or you need to, to run. You need to go for a run, get outdoors, uh, get some fresh air, and go for nice long jogs. You'll be pulled all sorts of different directions. If you think about, what do I need physically? And really, I think the answer to that is, just pick one of them, and it'll, it will work probably pretty well. But is that the same with our spirituality? Can we just pick something, it doesn't matter what it is, and that's, that will do well for us spiritually? We may think, what we really need is a worship experience. We need to be in a place where we'll really be moved by the music that is played. We'll really be moved by the pastor who's energetic and tugs on our heartstrings. This is what we really need, we, we may think. Or others may think, well, what we really need for our spirituality is small groups. We need to, to have vital small groups where we, we have community together, where we interact with one another. Others might say, well, no, what we really need is deep theology. We need to get serious about theology and the ins and outs of what it is that we believe the Bible teaches overall, this system of thought of what the Scripture teaches. Others will say, no, we just need love. No rules, just love is what we need for spirituality. Well, you can think of a variety of different things of what people might say we need for spiritual growth and nourishment. But where, where in those, all those thoughts about our spiritual needs would the ordinary means come into play? The ordinary means of grace. And you may not know what I mean by that. Well, specifically, I mean the reading and preaching of God's word in a corporate gathering, the prayers of the believers in a corporate gathering, and the sacraments of the Lord's Supper and baptism. So we often give these ordinary things short attention, little attention, as though they may not be very important to our spiritual lives, as though they may not be very important to our spiritual nourishment and growth in Christ. They're called ordinary means, but they are anything but ordinary. Uh, this past week, I had the opportunity to go on a field trip with my son to the zoo. And as we went to the different sections, the different animals, I couldn't help but just be amazed at God's wonderful world. I was just blown away looking at 
the huge elephants. I was amazed looking at the harbor seals as they swam through the water, how God created them with such beauty and such precision. I was in awe. But it's often the case as we become familiar with certain things, we become uninterested in them. So maybe if I went to the zoo every day of my life, I would get a little tired of it. I wouldn't be in awe of God's wonderful creation anymore. And so we may think about the ordinary means of grace in a similar way. We begin to treat them as unimportant, as, as things, yeah, we do, they're rituals, but they're, they're not really all that important or helpful to our spiritual lives. But our text for this morning really challenges us to think about the importance in particular of the Lord's Supper, of what we are doing when we gather together and partake of communion. Now, this is not the main point of Paul's teaching here, and yet we gain a lot from his argument. The main theme of this passage is since we have communion with Christ, notice I use that word intentionally, since we have communion with Christ and with one another in Christ, we cannot have communion with any other thing that rivals Christ. Paul here is teaching that there is an incompatibility with being attached to Christ in a certain way, communing with him and being attached to the things of this world in a rival way. In light of all that Paul has previously said, you see his command in verse 14, he commands them to flee idolatry. And he returns to this issue that he took up previously regarding eat eating meat sacrificed to idols. He reasons from the Lord's Supper that they should not dine in the temples of idols. He reasons and makes the point that more is going on here than simply what you see outwardly. There's more going on than just the physical ritual of what you're doing. You need to be aware of this, he says. There's something spiritual going on in the observance of the Lord's Supper. And he draws an analogy with what they're doing. Remember, they're going to these pagan temples in the midst of this idol worship, this ritualistic worship of pagan gods, and they are partaking of meat that had been sacrificed to these idols in the context of worship. So he draws an analogy with what's happening when one is doing this. What happens when one dines in the temple of idols? To take part in these feasts of worship to other gods is essentially to align oneself with them and to align themselves, ultimately, he says, with demons. Because what, is the, what is the goal of a demon? To draw away a person's worship from the one true God to things that are not God's. So in order to understand Paul's argument, we need to understand the nature of the Lord's Supper. What is actually happening here? What are we doing when we partake of the cup and of the bread? And similarly, what is happening when the Corinthians take part in ritual feasts of the pagans? And by analogy, what is happening when we exalt something or some person as an object of worship in our own hearts? Look at our text with me, 1 Corinthians 10, 14 to 22. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many 
are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what they sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Dear Father, please use your word to strengthen your people, to convict us of sin, to uh, tear away from us the idols of our hearts so that we would worship you and you alone. And we do pray that you would do this by, by the simple means of the reading and preaching of your word. Exalt Christ in our hearts and our minds so that everything else of this world would fade to the wayside. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This morning from this text, I want you to consider three answers to the question, what are we doing when we take the Lord's Supper? What are we doing when we take the Lord's Supper together? Here's the first answer. In the Lord's Supper, we are participating with, we are communing in the body and blood of Christ. Verse 14, he says, Therefore, my loved ones, flee idolatry. Paul is, uh, this, this is a transition phrase flowing from this previous argument. In light of all that he said, flee idolatry, but then also flowing into his next argument. Flee idolatry. And he's going to give us some more reasons why we ought to flee from idolatry. Verse 15, he appeals to their their thoughtfulness, their reasonableness. Remember, they thought of themselves as wise and intelligent. So there might be a little sarcasm here. But he, he is saying, weigh what I'm about to say to you here. In other words, Paul is so sure of what he's about to say that he knows if they, if they think about it, if they give thought to it, if they consider it, they'll clearly see the truth of it. Pay attention to what I'm saying, Paul says. And judge for yourselves if, if, whether or not this is true. It's not difficult to understand, he's saying. It's clear. Verse 16, he talks about the cup and the bread. Now, what is, what is he talking about when he says the cup of blessing which we bless? The bread which we break. Well, just for some background there, uh, turn to Matthew 26, verses 26 to 30. Of course, he's talking about the Lord's Supper, which he instituted uh, with his disciples. Uh, Matthew 26 26 to 30. There we read, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So Paul is referring to this cup and this bread in particular, the gathering of the people of God as they partake of the Lord's Supper, as they gather together in this this corporate time of worship and they partake of the elements of the Lord's Supper. The cup of blessing which we bless. Consider what Paul is saying here. What, what does he mean by the cup of blessing? Well, some say that it's a technical term referring to the specific third cup that they use in the observance of the Passover feast. 
But consider also just the word here that he's using, the cup of blessing which we bless. What is a blessing? We usually think of a blessing as something that we do, particularly at meals. Uh, pastors get asked often, would you say, please say the blessing over the meal? Uh, would you bless it? Uh, we, we pause before our meal at Panera or wherever, and we, we bless the food. Really, we're saying we give thanks for our food. We are, we're giving thanks to God because we recognize everything that we have has come from Him, and we're asking Him to use it for the nourishment of our bodies, for our strength, so that we might serve Him. We, we uh, say blessings over others, perhaps. At the end of each service, I, I lift my hands and I say a benediction, a blessing, if you will, over you. Uh, fathers and mothers sometimes say blessings over their children. And I, let me just encourage you, if you haven't done this, to, to t- make this a priority, to say blessings over your children. To stand over them at night as they are going to bed and say, Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give him peace. And not only will it work it over in their minds that they would remember these words, but it would also uh, call upon God to give him favor, give them favor, invoking God's favor upon them. And often we think about this, uh, we think about this in terms of our relationship with God as well. We turn sometimes his blessings into things that we do or we see, just like we're, we're blessing the food, or just like we're blessing uh, our sons and daughters. We think a blessing is something that we do. And sometimes we do this with the Lord's Supper, with the cup of blessing. We turn it into something that we do for God. We focus in on our particular d- devotion or how we feel towards God. We turn it into something we can do for God rather than receiving from Him what He has for us. But this cup of blessing is different. It's not something we do. It is something God has done for us. Something God is doing for us. The blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. This is the good news of the gospel. That Christ's body was broken for us. That his blood was poured out for us. So the cup of blessing is representative of his blood that was shed for us. Is this not a cup of blessing? Is this not uh, divine favor from God? We think about uh, all the blessings. Count your many blessings, name them one by one. There is no greater blessing than the blood of Jesus Christ shed for your sins and for mine. This is a blessing, brothers and sisters. And so as we gather to the table month by month, we should recognize this cup of blessing for the forgiveness of our sins. The word blessing here in particular is referring to God's act of blessing. His divine benefit of the, that He is giving us in the Lord's Supper. You see, the Lord's Supper is more than simply a memorial. It's more than simply a remembrance. So I have fond memories of growing up in the church. I'm thankful for, for my time growing up at Temple Baptist Church and spent some time at other churches. But most of my church memories come from, from that church in particular. And I remember sitting there during, during the Lord's Supper and looking up at uh, the, the table that they had. I want to say uh, it was a cream-colored table. 
and it had specific writing on the front of it. You probably know what writing it was. This do in remembrance of me. And I remember how solemn the occasion was and how it felt like a holy, holy time, a holy celebration and observance of the Lord's Supper. And so I was in, it was instilled in me, this is a precious thing that we are doing. And yet at the same time, it was mainly just a memorial. It was mainly just a remembrance, something that we reflect on and, and think about. Now, it is a remembrance. It is a memorial, but it's something more than that as well. There's something going on underneath and beyond what is merely seen. God is blessing us as we take the bread and the cup, as we receive him by faith in Jesus Christ. Paul says, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? He asks with full expectation that it will be answered in the affirmative. Yes, it is a participation in the blood of Christ. Well, what word is that that is used? It's used four times throughout these verses, and it's often translated as fellowship. You've probably heard the term before, koinonia. Perhaps a better translation would be something like participation, sharing. It's where we get the word communion. We are communing with Christ. And it's the same with the bread that we break. Is it not our participation in the body of Christ? Yes, absolutely it is. So Paul here sees it as more than just a memorial that the Corinthians are doing when they take the cup and the bread. It is a participation in Christ. It is an actual communing with the living and resurrected Jesus Christ. So there are a few views regarding the Lord's Supper. I'll, I'll just briefly kind of outline them for you so that we're, we're kind of understanding the categories here. There is the memorialist view where the Lord's Supper is mainly just a remembrance a, uh, a reflection of what Christ has done for our sins and thanking him for that. It is uh, often, however, focused on one's own personal commitment to Christ, focused on one's own personal piety and devotion. Now, there's a place for that. Don't uh, misunderstand me. And yet, this is where the focus of it is, remembering, reflecting, committing, recommitting yourself to God for what he has done for us. There is also a Catholic view in which grace is imparted through merely receiving the elements of the bread and the cup. They believe that Christ is physically present, like that the bread actually becomes the body of Christ and the wine actually becomes the blood of Christ, that he is physically present in the elements. They call it a representation of the sacrifice of Christ. And the focus perhaps here is on the physical elements which become the body and blood of Jesus. Well, then there is what we might could call a reformed view or a view of the Lord's Supper as a means of grace. And this is the view that I take, that grace is imparted through receiving the elements with faith in Jesus Christ. Receiving him as the word uh, is proclaimed. The words of institution, this is my body, this is my blood given for you. Take it and receive it in remembrance of me. Christ is spiritually present as we take of the Lord's Supper. He is spiritually present by means, by instrument of the Holy Spirit as we gather together and partake of the Lord's Supper. It's not a representation of the sacrifice of Christ, but it is a blessing which flows from his finished work on the cross for us. 
His body broken for us. His blood spilled out for the forgiveness of sins. And the focus of this view is Christ and all his benefits for us. Christ for sinners. So it's more than a remembrance, not less. It is a remembrance, but it's more as well. We are communing with Christ. As the Israelites partook of the Passover lamb and the angel of death passed over, so we partake by faith of the Lamb of God who takes away our sins. The Baptist Confession of Faith, listen to how it speaks of the Lord's Supper. Worthy receivers, outwardly partaking of the visible elements in this ordinance, do then also inwardly by faith, really and indeed, yet not carnally or corporally, but spiritually receive and feed upon Christ crucified and all the benefits of his death. The body and blood of Christ being then not corporally or carnally, but spiritually present to the faith of believers in that ordinance as the elements themselves are to their outward senses. So what I want to do in this point is heighten our understanding of what we are doing in the Lord's Supper. Heighten what we are doing and the importance of this practice. It is essential for our discipleship as Christians, for our spiritual growth in the faith, our spiritual growth in Christ. As individualistic Americans, we tend to prize and highlight our personal devotion times, our own personal, private, individual relationship with Christ, which, again, I'm not, I don't want to downplay that. I don't want to set that aside, but I want to heighten our corporate gathering. I want to heighten what we are doing here together as we hear the word preached, as we receive of the Lord's Supper, as we pray together. The Lord's Supper is essential to our spiritual discipleship. In it, we are meeting with Jesus. We are meeting with Christ. He's present, and we are participating in Him, communing with Him. He's spiritually feeding us with Himself and all His benefits purchased by His death. So the first answer to this question, what are we doing in the Lord's Supper? We are participating in Christ. But the second answer is uh, a her, ver, a horizontal, excuse me, a horizontal aspect. So there's the vertical of what we're doing with Christ. And then there's a horizontal aspect. We are uniting ourselves together as one body in Christ. Verse 17, since there is one bread, the many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. The one bread is Christ. And our unity with one another finds its origin in our union with Christ. So it's not merely saying that we are united in Christ. Something, there's something in particular about partaking of the Lord's Supper together, which binds us together. You could think of it as perhaps strands of, of yarn or webs that are gluing us together, forming us together as we partake of the Lord's Supper together. Spiritual things are going on underneath and beyond what you see. It's not simply some physical ritual that's happening. Think about even just the, the connections you make when you gather with others in other events. So I went to a baseball game several weeks ago, and uh, it was the Mudcats versus the Bowie's Creek Astros. Did you know Bowie's Creek has a baseball team now, a, a minor league team, at least for a few years? Uh, so I'm a graduate of Campbell, so I was really excited to see the Bowie's Creek Astros. Uh, and so 
we saw some people there with some Astros stuff on. So we thought, hmm, interesting. They're connected with Bowie's Creek somehow. Let's go talk to them. So I started talking to them and worked up a conversation about Campbell and about the new stadium that they have because of the Astros organization. And it was interesting. Even in just that moment, we were creating a bond together. We were creating a sort of unity. If you go to a football game and you cheer for the same team as all the people around you, you're cre- there's a sense in which you are creating a bond there together. You're creating a unity around this team that you're both focused on, that you're both cheering for. It could be a book club or a family reunion could be sharing a meal with one another. There are bonds that we are creating when we do things together. So if that's the case, then just these ordinary uh, non-spiritual things we might think of them, how much more when we gather together under the Lordship of Christ and He is present here with us? How much more are we creating bonds of unity when we pray together, when we partake of the Lord's Supper together, when we hear the preaching of His Word together? He is binding us together. You know, I think of um, ways that we may think that we have unity with other Christians, ways that we think are the most important. You know, Bible studies, care groups again, maybe affinity groups, uh, Mother's Mornings Out. Uh, you're, you're in the same kind of uh, age group, and so you fit together well and get to know each other, have some of the same interests. And we think that these are the things which bind us together. And they're all good things. These are fine things. They're helpful things. I don't want to undermine those things. But I want to highlight something about the supper. God is creating our unity in this service, in the ministry of the word, in the prayers, in the Lord's Supper, in a way that he hasn't promised to do in any other context, any other circumstance. I remember, again, my childhood time at Temple Baptist Church. On Sunday nights, we would... Uh, we would hear the word preached, we would sing together, we would pray together. And in the th- at the end of almost every service, if not every service, we would, everybody would hold hands and we would sing, we are one in the bond of love. We have joined our spirits with the spirit of God. We are one in the bond of love. It's such a beautiful image of our unity together in Christ, that Christ is the one that unites us together. Not our special interests, not the fact that we like to do certain things together, not that we're in the same generational uh, place or, or circumstance in our lives, but that Christ unites us together. We are one with Him, and therefore we are one with one another, and He is creating this unity in us as we partake of the supper together. He's bonding us together. Don't neglect the means God has given you for your spiritual growth and nourishment. And don't neglect the means God has given for our unity in the church. In other words, come to church. (laughs) That sounds counter to what the rest of our culture and even Christian culture tells us. They say, you don't go to church, you be the church. You don't need to go to church. You can have your own private spirituality and communion with God. No, I think Paul and I think Jesus would tell us, gather together with the church. Make it a priority. And you say, well, Jim, you have a special interest in this. (laughs) Well, yes, I do. But I also happen to think it's true. I think this is absolutely true. That God would have us to gather together regularly and make it a very important priority. Because of what he is doing in the midst of it. And you say, 
Well, certain Sundays I don't get too much out of the music or the sermon or the prayers. There are things going on which you don't know about. And God is doing a work through the ordinary means. Believe it. It is true. Give thought, brothers and sisters, to your commitment to these ordinary means by which God is nourishing us in Christ, but also forming us together as a body. I also think Paul wants the Corinthians to think about their unity, even when they're not gathered together with the church. Right? They were going to these temples, and he's saying, when you do this, you're affecting your unity as a church. You're binding yourselves to these people and to these idols, but also you're doing things that will bring harm to your unity as a church. So we ought to also give thought of the things that we are doing outside of the church and, and consider, is anything I'm doing in this situation going to bring harm to my unity with my brothers and sisters in Christ? The Lord's Supper is essential to our discipleship and to our spiritual unity with one another. There's one more answer to this question. What are we doing in the Lord's Supper? And it's this, in the Lord's Supper, we are renouncing all other rival partnerships. We are renouncing all other partnerships. See this in verses uh, 18 to 22. Good verse 18. Consider the people of Israel. Now, incidentally, he says there, uh, literally, consider Israel according to the flesh. Which reminds us there is an Israel, an ethnic Israel according to the flesh, and then there is an Israel, the Israel of God, which is Christ and all who are connected to him, the people of God in Christ. Consider Israel according to the flesh. Remember we said last week that he he causes us to look on the Israels and to learn from their example. And he says, aren't they participating in the altar when they make sacrifices? When they eat the sacrifices, aren't they participating in the altar? In other words, there's an identification with the sacrifice, almost as if they are offering themselves as a sacrifice in participating in this sacrifice. Now, Paul makes a clarification. Don't hear me saying that these are really There are other gods. Don't hear me saying that eating food offered to idols is anything or idols are anything. They are nothings, he says. They're nothing. They're not God. They are not gods. They are nothings. However, he says, but there are spiritual realities behind these things and that they are demons. There are spiritual forces behind what they are doing. Now notice verse 20. He says, no, I imply that what they or pagan sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to gods. I do not want you to be participant with demons. Now, the translators have supplied the word pagan sacrifice because they think Paul's referring to the Gentiles in the day of the writing. But the text simply reads, no, I imply that what they sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. Well, who is the they is what we have to ask. And I take the view with some other commentators that the they is Israel, who he was just talking about. Israel according to the flesh. They ate these sacrifices. They were participants in the altar. They offered to idols, to non-gods. And Moses says that they made sacrifices to demons. 
We saw this last week in Deuteronomy 32, 15 to 18, where he says, But, but Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You grew fat. Jeshurun is Israel. You grew fat, stout, and sleek. Then he forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were not gods, that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. Now, in this instance, specifically, Paul is talking about eating meat sacrificed in the temples. He's drawing this analogy. The Israel people offered to idols, which were really nothing, but behind them, there were demons present, drawing the people of God away from the worship of the one true God to worship other things. He's speaking of the Corinthians practice of eating meat sacrificed in the temples in the midst of this ritualistic worship. Next week we'll see he addresses sacrificed meat bought in the market, and he says this is okay in some circumstances. But he says, don't think what you're doing has no implications. You may know that idols are nothing and this is nothing, but there are demons behind it. And you say, well, what, what does that have to do with us? Because we don't go to, to foreign temples, temples of foreign gods and eat meat in the midst of ceremonial worship. Is there any application for us here? We shouldn't think that this has no application simply because we don't have their exact circumstance. A few examples, maybe, and you judge for yourself the pertinence of these uh, examples, the relevancy of them. Maybe this first one's a silly example, but I was talking about this passage with uh, a guy that I met recently who was a Christian, a graduate of Southeastern as well, and uh, he, he seemed to think there was a little bit of relevancy to it. He attended a Duke game, Duke basketball game, so wild, rambunctious, all that stuff. I'm a Carolina fan. I can leave that stuff. So maybe you can judge me on this example too because it's not a good example of Duke basketball. But he attended a Duke game and he said, you know, the student section is going wild and crazy and then Coach K walks into the, the gym and all the students raise their hands and start bowing down to him like this. Now you might view that. Well, they don't really mean anything by that, right? They're just being silly and crazy. But wouldn't the Corinthians be thinking some, some of the similar things? We don't really mean anything by this, by this action that we are doing. We don't really mean anything by it. Or I read in a book about a man who was uh, stranded, uh, uh, a soldier, uh, a Navy SEAL who was stranded in Afghanistan. And he was in a village that they were treating him kindly. And in order to just go along with the flow, he did the prayers along with them to Allah. And he could probably reason to himself, well, I didn't really mean it. I wasn't meaning anything by that. I was just simply trying to go along to protect myself. Well, you might be caught up in some group doing New Age spirituality. 
I, re- I remember hearing from a guy who was, I can't remember the circumstance, but he was in some, some corporate gathering of some sort, and they started saying these certain ritualist, ritualistic phrases. And each person, they went around the room, and each one was about to say, and he's, I've got to get out of here. I know it's nothing, but there's something behind what's going on. Anytime you're being led astray from worshiping the one true God, there's something underneath. Demons are at work trying to draw you away to worship something other than God. So there's an indirect application here as well, which is the broader nature of idolatry. What is idolatry? Is it simply bowing down before uh, uh, an object made of wood or stone? Well, in Colossians 3.5, Paul says this, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry, he says. All these sins, he says, these are idolatry. To participate in these things is to turn your attention, your loyalty, your worship to a non-God. One who is sexually immoral or impure. It's not just innocent sin. It's not just a guilty pleasure. You have turned your heart to worship your own pleasure. You have turned your way, your your mind and your heart, your worship away from the one true God. One who is covetous has turned his heart to worship things he doesn't possess. Nothings which don't deserve worship. They are non-gods. And therefore, to worship a thing that is not God is to end up worshiping demons instead, to align yourself with demons in opposition to God. For that's their desire. That is Satan's desire. Brothers and sisters, listen. Teenagers and children, listen. To plunge yourself into any sort of sin and disobedience to God is to align yourself with demons. This is what Paul is saying. This is idolatry. And he says, flee idolatry. Run away from it. Have no part in it. Don't see how close you can get to it to see you know, what you can enjoy without crossing over the line. Flee idolatry, Paul says. Run away. Satan wants to destroy you, to turn you away from serving and worshiping the one true God, to rob God of the glory due his name. And this is why Paul makes this exclusive statement in verse 21. You cannot do it. You cannot drink of the cup of the Lord and of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. To participate in one is to deny the other. Or else we provoke the Lord to jealousy just as the Israelites did. And if we do that, then we, like them, will fall down in judgment. For no, we are not stronger than the Lord. His wrath will surely come. See, this is what we are doing in the Lord's Supper. We are participating in and communing with Christ. We are uniting ourselves as one body. We are renouncing all other loyalties. But we're not merely declaring our exclusive allegiance to Christ. As we come to the table and receive the bread and receive the cup by faith, we are weaning ourselves off of the idols of this world. 
by feeding on Christ, by being nourished by His body and blood, month after month and year after year and decade after decade, our hearts are being fixed on Christ and the things of this world are fading into the background. And we will continue to do so until that day when we share a table with the physical, glorified, resurrected Jesus Christ in his new kingdom. We will feast with the best bread and the best wine and the sweetest, most intimate communion we've ever known. And each Sunday is a foretaste of this feast, brothers and sisters. Let's take advantage of what God has given us. Let's never cease to be amazed that our great God has condescended to us, not for punishment, not for wrath, but to give us grace and mercy, which is found only in Christ Jesus. His body broken for us, his blood poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. Let us pray together.